Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AI Innovators Podcast. I'm Rob May. I'm the CEO of Nova. We're the company that makes Brand Guard, and I'm also a very active AI angel investor. And the AI Innovators Podcast is designed to bring you sort of cutting edge ideas from investors, from entrepreneurs, from executives at big companies that are, that are working on really interesting things. And my guest today is a guy named Eric Olson from a company called Consensus, which uses natural language processing to ingest research papers and understand what the consensus is on any type of scientific issue. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, how it works and and where all that's going. So Eric, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I want to start with this crazy growth that you've had at consensus. And, And in particular, I want you to explain like what your product does and how you found early users and how you've continue to grow it month over month with so little marketing spend? Is it is it something about the nature of the product or the way people find it or just like walk us through all of that? Yeah, totally. So we've been super, super lucky to, to put some real numbers to the growth you're talking about. We, we launched about nine months ago. In that time, we have approaching 500,000 now registered active users. What the product does is it's a search engine that powered by language models allows you to search a natural language research question, think something like, is fish oil actually good for my heart? Uh, And what we'll do is we'll sift through papers and we pull out the claims that are made within research papers, so the conclusions of the authors, and we surface those directly on the results page, along with some quality indicator data about the source material. And we do some cool generative AI over top of those to you know, synthesize across 10 different papers. But at the core of it, it still is just an AI-powered search engine. And then we do some cool uh, generative things around it to hopefully make the experience easier and better for you. We were really lucky. We, we launched at the right time. We launched in the fall of last year, just ahead of ChatGPT. And we kind of have been able to ride that wave a little bit. I think there's been a lot of buzz in the space. It's allowed us to get some early press. We were featured in the New York Times and in the Atlantic, writing about early use cases with language models. Uh, so that has helped us tremendously. You know, every day on Twitter, you see the thread of 10 AI tools that will blow your mind. And as those definitely can be a little cringe, they definitely still do help find users. And we've been lucky to be included on tons of those that have led to some growth. You know, so that's all just riding the wave of AI, but in order to be able to ride the wave, you have to do some things with your product that make people excited. And then you also have to do things that make it really easy for them to sign up and get directly into it. And I think we've been able to do that really well. Uh, we pride ourselves in being a product-led, product-first company. It's at the center of everything we do. If you go to our landing page, the first thing you see is a search bar. You don't see any weird, you know, SaaS jargon book a call to sign up. Like We try to get you right into the product, and we always will try to do that. And I think that's really helped us capitalize on some of this AI hype and excitement that we've been able to ride. Yeah. And now what were you doing before this? Were you working in the field as a scientist or did you have friends that do this? How did you recognize the need and how did you realize that we were at the right point in a technology adoption cycle to sort of like you couldn't have built this very, very functionally, you know, complete just a couple of years ago even? Yeah. uh, So I was definitely not working as a scientist. So our founding story is me and my co-founder were actually teammates, college football teammates. uh, And we were the the jocks and families of scientists and teachers. So my co-founder, Christian, is the only member of his family that does not have his PhD or currently pursuing his PhD. My parents met at an MIT lab. My sister is a lifelong teacher. My grandfather is a lifelong professor. So we're kind of 
outsiders to academia who've always had an appreciation for science and evidence. And yeah, it was honestly like just a, a personal problem I had experienced over the years of a difficulty of trying to actually conduct evidence-based research. And that these consumer-facing tools that everyone is so used to using and loves to use for certain use cases just aren't built to help you actually get to the bottom of what the data says about your questions. And that applies whether you're doing that in your personal life, whether you're doing that at work, or whether you're doing that for your studies. There's some crazy percentages of doctors and students who still just use Google or ChatGPT to do their research. And they're really using tools that just aren't built to help them actually get to the core of this amazing source material that is scientific research. I had pitched that idea to, to Christian a number of years ago before even knowing what a language model was. And then we both worked in tech. He worked as a product manager. I, I come from a data science background. I was at DraftKings, uh, the sports betting company, working just in like the analytics department, so building models to understand our users. So some technical background to like understand how machine learning systems work, but I was not entrenched in AI by any means. And then ton of credit goes to Christian. It was it was in the middle of COVID where he called me back and was like, well, number one, yeah, that idea you had, like, I think the world really needs this right now. And number two, he had started doing some research of how it could all work. And we stumbled across some of these early language model papers. And I, I think to our credit, we kind of said to each other, like, whoa, like, there's about to be a bunch of startups built over the next few years that are going to be really successful leveraging this technology. And we thought the combination of technological feasibility being really early in this technological wave that we thought was coming, along with what we clearly saw was this new demand. We, was, we basically said to each other, like, this is too good of a why now story to not try to work on this. So we, we come from a, a non-science background, non-AI background, and somehow found ourselves working on an AI science tool. I mean, I mean, it's it's amazing that you you raised any money because, like, from a VC perspective, if you just heard this story, you'd be like, okay, two guys that you know don't come from the right background to do this, who are competing with Google, effectively, right? Like all the all the things VCs do not want to want to see. I'm really curious how your early fundraising went. Tell me, you know, did did you get the whole wait you're competing with Google thing a lot, or were people worried that you know this? was too hard a problem or a small TAM or like, you obviously ended up raising a really good round from Draper, but what was that process like? Yeah. So, you know, the, the recent round of fundraising that, that was led by Draper Associates, that came post product launch and post having a bunch of organic traction. So it doesn't mean it was, you know, it was easy by any stretch, but like that came with real evidence of some success and traction. Whereas we were, we did raise a small pre-seed round that that got us started, hired a small engineering team, and we, we quit our full-time jobs. And it was in the summer of 2021, I think is probably how it'd start with how it was able to be done. So it was a time when the capital was flowing. Doesn't mean we still didn't get all the things you said. Is this a big enough time? Will people actually care about this? Do people actually want to get better information? Or are they happy with being misinformed? Why doesn't Google just do this? You know, we, we definitely got all of those things. And that was before you know, these language models were popularized. So we definitely had people also being like, what the heck? Like, can you even do things like that? And why can you guys do it? But we, we scrapped together. We, we found a, an early engineer to work with us and we scrapped together a little demo. And I think that was pretty powerful back in 2021 to be able to show, hey, you can type in a few keywords and we'll like pull out these answers from research papers. It took like three minutes to run and like it scraped PubMed, but it was enough, especially at that time before people had seen these 
these demos and had played with ChatGPT, it was enough to get some people excited. And then, you know, I think we were we were both lucky that we had successful short careers in tech, and we both were able to get you know checks from former bosses and, and things like that. So by no means this this banner venture round, but we were able to piece things and things together from some friends and family, some former bosses, some angel investors, some small VC funds to raise about a million dollars to get us started. And then, as you mentioned, we were able to raise a, a subsequent round of funding this past winter after some of the success of launching the product. So 2021 was the biggest reason, but we were able to you know piece together some things from people who had known us in previous jobs. Yeah, well, no, no funding. I mean, I've, you know, done four startups and I can tell you I've raised a lot of money. No round is ever easy in that right. sense of the word, right? Some of them look that way at the end and some are easier than others, but they're, they're, they're always a lot of work. So let's dive in and talk about what I think is the most interesting and challenging piece of what you're doing. And I, I'm really interested with you being in the middle of this, like what your perspective is, but like, how do you think about defensibility when you're dealing with NLP and large language models? And you started this before ChatGPT came out. So you've seen some of this evolution that's happened really, really fast. And a, a lot of VCs are concerned with these businesses being thin wrappers on top of, you know, GPT. How do you think about where the world is going and how you build long-term defensibility in that world and the steps you have to take today to get there? Yeah. First off, I don't know if you remember, but I think we when we met with you, it was like one week before ChatGPT came out, which was definitely an interesting thing to happen in the middle of a fundraise, both for better and for worse. It definitely got people excited, but it also raised a bunch of the questions that you're talking talk about. And you know, there was definitely venture funds that just took a step back and were like, I gotta see where the puck's going and really understand, you know, this big change has clearly happened. Like what the hell is going on? Yeah. But yeah, it, you know, it's something we think about a lot. So I have a lot of thoughts on it. I think first I'd say I'd probably take a little bit of a contrarian side on some of the the pushback on a quote unquote thin wrappers. There's gonna be plenty of really successful businesses that are relatively thin wrappers. Uh, you know, Jasper AIs, no, no, no shots at them. They're an awesome, awesome business. They're a billion dollar business that has been built as a relatively thin wrapper on GPT-4 because they do a bunch of other things really, really well. But it also does mean that it's easier for your competition to then build your core, the, the core part of your products. So like it is obviously a defensibility concern, but I still don't think that like inherently precludes you from being a successful business if you are built over an API call of GPT. But I think there's still a lot of things you can do to build up defensibility. So like in our context, I think one of them is, you know, investing heavily in the parts of your product that are really important and aren't solved by just some fancy language model. So for us, that like that is like the retrieval of the documents. That's like the core search engine, the search logic. Language model technology can help you do that better. But when we have a corpus of 200 million documents, just switching on GPT-4 doesn't solve any of your problems. Like you have to build this complex chain of search logic to figure out the best way to retrieve the right documents. So we're trying to invest really heavily in that because that is a really defensible part of our business. And it's what can be uh, one of the poor proprietary core pieces of our business. And like to put that alongside something that we could have spent more time investing in, we eventually will, but we inherit we decided to prioritize what I just talked about because we think it's more defensible. So you've, you've probably seen some of the like the upload your PDF document, chat with your document, ask questions, products and, and features. And we get requested right. that a lot from our users. So like we definitely will do it, but we would never want that to be like a core feature of our product or the core part of our product because that that is not a very defensible thing. Like the once you get the document, 
getting a language model to do cool things to it isn't that hard anymore. But the getting the document, in our case, the search logic is still the hard part. So for us, this was thinking deeply about what is an important part of the product that really is defensible, and we try to invest in that. Then the others, you know, there's there's a bunch of other things. I think all the things that have made great software products in the past also just apply here, and we're going to make help you be more defensible. So that's you know applying this technology in a really thoughtful and useful way. Like just because something is easy to build, there's been plenty of parts of other software products that are easy to build, but they can still be super powerful and super helpful if they're applied in a really really thoughtful way. And all of that applies for language models. Uh, I think. UX and experience is going to really, really matter. And that's going to be a huge differentiator between products, both in terms of how just you know appealing it is on the surface, but how thoughtful it is in helping you end up solving your problems. I think that's something that we try to invest in a lot as well. And then proprietary data is an obvious one here. In our case, like we need proprietary data to train some of the language models in our product to do specific tasks because they're too custom to just use out-of-the-box things. Even GPT-4 can't do some of the things we're asking. An example of that is like classifying the study design, like what type of study a paper is. Like It's pretty domain-specific, jargon-heavy. It's a classification task. GPT out-of-the-box isn't that great at it. And we've had to create proprietary data sets to train our own open-source models to do those tasks. And the more companies can find their their corollary example of that where they have this very specific niche thing that helps solve a user problem that requires proprietary data, that is a great thing to invest in because it's it will inherently be more defensible because it won't be any of these language models won't be able to use out of the box to solve them. So kind of a long and winding answer, but there are definitely things to be done right now to make your your business more defensible. Yeah, no, it it makes a lot of sense, right? And even if there's a lot of uncertainty with the way the world's moving on some of these things, as a startup, you have to put some chips on the table and make some bets on where it's going. And it sounds like you guys have made some good ones. Yeah, so I'm really interested in the sort of political side of your business now, because decades ago, science was science and not that much in the eye of the public. And now with things like climate change and COVID and vaccines, it's almost like these are political issues. And Part of your goal is to show people the different perspectives and cut past that and and show people what seems to be the truth and how much consensus there is. So has that change in science, in how the public views science over the last 10 or 15 years, has that created any issues for you and your product? Or how do you deal with maybe that aspect of how people look at research papers and summaries and and consensus itself? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. I'd say first, like it, it's part of the reason why we wanted to start the company. And I talked about the the formation of the company. Like it's part of our why now story is that there's this growing societal demand for something and there, this, and there's a growing just general interest and, and focus on these types of issues. And there needs to be the tools to help people get to the best information possible. So it helps us in that way because there's people interested in what we're doing. I think we do a lot of things to try to help people as they're parsing through these potential controversial topics. So one of them is exactly what you said, where we try to just be a reflection of the research and everything that we're sending back to you is tied back to the research documents themselves. So we're not generating this text out of thin air. It's always going to be tied back to a paper. We still have the search engine results that are what are populating all of the things that you see. We still have the underlying documents on the results page, right? When you see everything. 
And then there's another piece of that that is allowing you to see across multiple papers and multiple perspectives and really see if there is a consensus that always is going to help your problems. You're not just saying this is the answer. You're saying here are a multitude of different answers from across these different sources. And then there's another piece of this too that, that we're working really hard on. We have some cool things on the way. There is some things you can do to analyze the, the rigor of the source material. So not only are you showing across multiple sources, you're also saying, here are some things to care. Here are some things that you should know about what makes this likely or li not likely to be a quality source. So you can look at proxy metrics that are things like journal rankings or author rankings or citations. You can also do, which is what we're working on, some really cool stuff on like looking within the paper and saying, what type of study design was used? What was the sample size? What was the effect size? Was it blinded? You can do all sorts of really cool things, the same things that an expert would do to assess the validity of a given source, we can train language models to replicate those processes and surface that to the user to say, all right, here are these 20 different claims across 20 different papers. They're kind of grouped into these schools of thoughts. And this is the likely quality of the research behind it all. And like showing that breadth of data really, really, really helps people. It really helps, you know, you're able to be transparent. Uh, you're able to not just be saying, yeah, this is this is exactly what you should believe. It's like, here is all of the best available evidence. This is then what means it's likely to be true or not. Awesome. That's uh, probably an issue you guys are going to have to deal with for, for quite some time. You're in a really interesting market that not a lot of people serve sort of like the scientific or research market, particularly from a startup perspective. And part of the reason is there's a, you know, there's a perception that it's small and all that kind of stuff, which it Obviously, I don't think it's true. I'm I'm an investor in you guys, but it's probably very different than some of the places that you came from, like DraftKings or sports betting. And so I'm I'm curious, what's a big insight or something unexpected that you've learned since you know maybe about the market or the technology or the customer that you really didn't understand going into this and sort of only revealed by working through it? Yeah. So I'll give you one on the tech, and I'll give you one on the on the market and customer. So I think. One of the, the biggest things we've, we've learned from talking to users and seeing all the different ways the product's being used is how many different domains use academic research outside of academia. We have done user interviews and talked to users that range from in a silo content creator who's just completely independent, who's just writing blogs on a variety of, of health or maybe political topics that use peer-reviewed research to help them in their writing. We've done user interviews with fitness coaches who use peer-reviewed research to share with their clients about the recommendations they're making. We've done user interviews with psychiatrists who use it to learn about the best therapies and the best ways to address mental health issues. We've done user interviews with MDs at hospitals, We've done user interviews with healthcare consultants. So, you know, when you hear academic research, a lot of times you think, you just think academia or scientists. And it's been pretty incredible to learn about all the incredible places that research is being leveraged. And I also think one of our theses is going into this, which is definitely showing to be true to some extent, I think will only become more true is I think there's a lot of other places that could use this source material that just haven't had the tools or the skills or the attention span to use it and apply it in their field. And we hope to be building the tools and those bridges to help get some of those people to be able to use this type of information in the work that they're doing or in their personal lives. And then something on the tech, this kind of goes back to some of our defensibility conversations. We have the biggest thing that we changed that I thought we were going to be doing is when we started making our hiring plans and doing our budgets like a year ago. We thought we were basically like only going to be hiring like AI ML engineers. But with the 
the boom of this technology and all the new models that have come out and the accessibility to these models, we have really pivoted towards hiring more just traditional software engineers. Like in building and outputting usable production level machine learning models is just way easier than we could have ever imagined a year ago with the advent of these technologies. So the bottlenecks aren't really around on developing new models to put in the product. It's building the software infrastructure around it to support it and be used in the thoughtful way that is really the bottleneck. So I think our hiring plans have kind of flipped on their head from AI engineers to software engineers. Now, you're really well positioned to understand sort of where LLMs are going, where NLP is going. And so what's your view of the core technology over the next 24 months? Do you think, you know, we're going to see lots of people copy GPT-4 and and get better? Are we going to see GPT-5 come and just blow us out of the water? Are we at a a technical limit for these things? Do you expect other new types of breakthroughs? Just when you guys, and I, you know, realize there's a lot of uncertainty out there, but I'm just curious if you have a perspective on, on where you think this is going over the next 18 to 24 months. I mean, you, you hit on some of the, the biggest open questions for sure. I think a few things. One, I think we all were tricked a little bit into a sense of what the pace of innovation is here by ChatGPT and then fast followed by GPT-4. Uh, like GPT-3 had been out for years before that. And then ChatGPT came and they had they had already finished training GPT-4 by the time ChatGPT came out. So they kind of stacked the deck in terms of velocity of releases there. And I kind of think it tricked us into being like, oh, this is just the tempo of the space. Now there's going to be a GPT-4 level breakthrough every few months because ChatGPT comes out December 1st, GPT-4 comes out in mid-March. But really that was already ready ahead of time. And ChatGPT was built of some, you know, on some intermediary between the two, but it was built with GPT-3-ish technology that had already been out for up to a year before that. So I think Things will be a little slower than people would have originally thought. I think people are kind of starting to realize that. So I don't expect a giant GPT-4 or ChatGPT level breakthrough in the next few months. And what I think that means is kind of what you alluded to of like, what is the future? Is it just, is bigger? does bigger solve our problem or do we have to get smaller and more specialized? And I think what we see over the next 12 months, especially, is a lot more smaller, specialized production level they have low latency models that are going to be really, really, really good at specific tasks. I think specialization is going to be the name of the game over the next 12 months, both because cost, latency to be able to use in products. And I think that is the best way to get real performance to really solve some of these problems that we'll start to see some of the successful startups solve. We'll be having specialized smaller models. Very, very interesting take. So I want to wrap up talking a little bit about the company and, and I, I want to end on a, a question that I like to ask our guests because, you know, you guys are all that, that, that come on here, had some career success and done a lot of different stuff. And, and there's a lot of young entrepreneurs and, and technology people that sort of listen to this podcast. And so what's one piece of life or career advice that you've learned or someone told you or, or something that happened along the way that you'd sort of like to share with all the listeners? Yeah, I think this is something that I definitely learned playing high-level college sports, and then it has come completely to the forefront again in starting a company, is just always remembering that everybody out there has imposter syndrome and that you just, you know, that you never feel perfectly ready to do anything. And if you just are waiting to the point of when you feel perfectly ready to do something, you'll just never do anything. And that is very much a fine line to walk between 
faking it till you make it than, you know, Elizabeth Holmes. But the reason why Elizabeth Holmes has happened is because there is something beautiful about venture and technology, starting technology companies that requires you to take these these big leaps and to do things that potentially make you feel uncomfortable in the domains that you don't always know everything about when you're starting out in them. And I just encourage people to, you know, when you have that little voice in your head, it's like, oh, I can't do this. I don't know, but I'm, I'm not the expert here. I don't have this crazy line of credentials or whatever, but that shouldn't stop you from doing things that you feel passionate about and the problems that you think you could solve. You know, it's, it's a really great point. And it's funny that, you know, at this point in my career, I've, I've been doing startups for 15 years. I'm an investor in like about 130 companies or have been some of them have sold or shut down or whatever. But, and I do uh, like, I pull these entrepreneurs together a lot, right. For like dinners and things like that. Some big ones, but, but sometimes small ones. And the thing that's really funny when you, when you get say six or eight people together and they're all different stages, right. You have the, the two person startup that's, you know, just yeah. raised the friends and family round. And then you have the the growth stage startup. And then you have the like, you know, sometimes we'll have public company CEOs that started, you know, here in Boston or in New York and, and have, have taken their companies really far, right? It's like, you know, I've had the Hub, HubSpot guys at some of this and David Friend from Carbonite and some different people. And everybody kind of envies where somebody else is, no matter where you are, everybody feels a little uncertain, right? I, you know, the, the public markets guys are like, ah, oh, I remember we could just move fast and do stuff and all this. And the, you know, the smaller guys are like, ah, oh, wish we had, you know, the resources. And yeah. so you, you do really have to learn to sort of like accept where you are and, and kind of enjoy the path and, and kind of like, yeah, just some, so sometimes fake it and, and keep going. Cause you're always a little over your head. Yeah. So. And I, I think realize when you have enough experience, when you realize that everybody thinks that always, no matter where they are is a pretty powerful unlock. And yeah, I think putting yourself out there and doing things is the way that you have that unlock and you have that realization. Like you can say it, but you never really get it until you feel it and you have some success and something you were unsure about. And it's like, oh, wait, like I still kind of feel like I don't belong. And like you realize that never goes away. And then you can finally start to, to quiet down that voice in your head a little bit. Great. Well, Eric, if, if people want to try out Consensus and see how it works, should they download an app? Should they go to a website? What's the easiest way? Yeah, go, to, go directly to our website, consensus.app, A-P-P. Uh, and you can sign up for free. And we do have a few things paywalled in the product, but the majority of the functionality is completely free to try out. Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the podcast today and uh, wish you the best of luck building out consensus. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Rob.